0: Civil war in Sudan and the information vacuum activists are determined to fill. Tone deaf in Brussels, the official birthday greeting sent to Israel and the blowback online. Plus, Tunisia's president turns his people against each other by playing the migrant card. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we provide explanatory journalism about journalism. The Sudanese capital, Khartoum, looks like a war zone these days as two generals and their armies fight for control of the country. In one corner, Abdel Fattah al Burhan, whose forces helped oppose the former president Omar al Bashir in 2019. In the other, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, better known as Hemekdi, leader of a rival army called the Rapid Support Forces. Caught in the middle, the Sudanese people, who despite frequent internet outages and power cuts, have taken to social media to find safe evacuation routes, medical supplies. They are also heavily reliant on the efforts of the online resistance committees that led the 2019 revolution against al-Bashir and are still at work. With al-Burhan and hameti pushing their own narratives on social media and jostling to control the state-run airwaves, the other thing the people of Sudan need right now? reliable information.
1: The capital Khartoum has been under siege for days now. Fighting has erupted between a paramilitary force and the country's army.
0: Two warring men in uniform, once allies, now adversaries. Hundreds dead, hundreds of thousands trying to flee Sudan. With the recurring power cuts and internet outages, getting video interviews out of Khartoum is not easy. The activist we spoke to over WhatsApp describes a capital city gone dark.
2: I used to live in Amarat, the epicenter of the clashes. It was one of the worst hit areas in the city. And so there was a WhatsApp group where everyone would post updates. That was our source of information. So once that internet outage happened, we lost that. No one knew what was happening. It was very frightening and disorienting because you're completely caught up. We were living in actual darkness and it was just a nightmare.
0: In 2019, the Sudanese people had higher hopes. After 30 years under the dictatorship of Omar al-Bashir, they got organized online and took to the streets. Eight months of protests and civil disobedience later, rival military forces turned on al-Bashir and joined the pro-democracy movement, teaming up to help take him down and pledging to restore democracy by this year, 2023. Two years later, the respective generals reneged on that promise. They've been eyeing each other ever since. Fattah al-Burhan of the Sudanese Armed Forces and Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, also known as Hameti of the paramilitary group RSF, are now engaged in this winner-take-all fight for the presidency in Khartoum.
3: The battle between Burhan and Hameti is about supremacy, and ultimately, it is about who controls Sudan. There is also a media war and a narrative And it is one that Hamedi has been preparing for for a while. There are reports that he hired public relations firms out of the Emirates, the UAE, which gives you a sense of of who is supporting um, Hamedi. Nobody is buying it who's actually Sudanese, who knows anything about Hamedi and the history of the conflict. (laughs) Wuhan is is much more of a traditional military man. And, And so his Positioning hasn't been nearly as polished as Hemeti's, who's very focused on presenting himself as a statesman.
4: We're seeing both sides using social media to stake these claims to try and give the impression that they have the upper hand um, and to try and throw mud at each other. Sudanese in Khartoum and across the country, you know, they see the contrast between these fine words and grand claims and the reality of what's unfolding often on the front door steps of their houses or on the streets outside i think it negates the effectiveness of a lot of the messaging that they're trying to do hameti tends to
5: have an interesting message where he views himself as a protector of the democratic movements for change because he comes from a marginalized region of darfur now this is a real contradiction because he's also inflicted enormous amount of violence against protesters he's also inflicted violence against people in darfur
0: And not just protesters. General Hameti's RSF army, the Rapid Support Forces, have a genocidal reputation to live down. Born in the 1980s as a militia known as the Janjaweed, Hameti's soldiers rose to infamy in the early 2000s when they helped Omar al-Bashir's government forces fight a civil war in the southern region of Darfur against non-Arabic-speaking separatists there. They committed human rights atrocities on an enormous scale, doing much of al Bashir's most sinister work for him. One way to keep that narrative and any criticism of the RSF's current military operations out of the mainstream media coverage today is to take control of the state owned broadcaster Sudan TV, which General al Burhan's troops will not allow without a fight.
6: It's a classic move
4: of coups, particularly in Africa, or the first days of military conflicts, that there's a fight for control of the state TV station. Um, and that's certainly what happened here. Both sides have used state TV in order to get their uh, message out there. But, uh, Also in recent years, I think many Sudanese have turned both to private TV stations and to social media for a lot of their news. And I think people discount a lot of what they see on state TV as something that really is one-sided. Historically, there
5: has been a lot of skepticism on the part of civic uh, movements of these um, state-backed news outlets. At the same time, um, they still get some of their messages across, but it's also countered by an enormous uh, reliance upon digital methods of communication, be that Twitter, encrypted networks, or what have you, where people are cross-checking stories, verifying them.
7: We need to consider that whenever we talk about social media reach, It is really only a small segment of the Sudanese population because internet diffusion is estimated to be maybe 30% at most. And those that do use social media are typically younger cohorts, those that are educated, understand English and that are far more media savvy than older cohorts. Which also means that this is the same demographic that is more inclined or more able to recognize fake news. For what it is and to understand how social media and how fake news work
3: the number of times my family members have sent me videos or screenshots of something they've seen that says Hamid has been killed if i had a penny for every time somebody did that i'd be able to fund the evacuation because the amount of misinformation and the amount of rumor and conjecture that that flies around the flow of information is incredibly polluted <laughs>
0: For a population where just one in three citizens are online, the Sudanese are remarkably organized and highly effective at political networking. In 2019, they formed resistance committees on social media that proved crucial in galvanizing protesters to come out against al-Bashir to demand a democratic Sudan. Those committees remain in place, adapting to the times and the needs of the people.
2: Me and my family, When we came to be evacuated from our house, the two people who came to save us enlisted the help of resistance committee members because they knew all the back roads, they knew all the alleyways, they knew how to get our friends from point A to point B. And they did it calmly and without any fanfare. And me and my family will forever, forever be in debt to them. The resistance committees are what give me hope In Sudan because they
3: have shown what Sudan can really be and they've shown the power of the Sudanese civilians and the power of collaboration on these hashtags you will find people sharing phone numbers people saying hey i can't contact my uncle i can't contact my dad here is his phone number can you try call him and see if 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 he's still alive um i need insulin can somebody get it to me over here I'm in this house, what's a safe passage?
7: It's actually been incredible. But at internet service providers in Sudan, they tend to be state-owned, and any internet access that comes from the state can expose activists and resistance committees to risks. So learning from other social movements, some may actually opt to organize and, uh, and resist offline because it's harder to track and outside the state surveillance reach through social media.
2: And it's these committees that are helping because us Sudanese have been left behind. The NGOs, the embassies, they took care of their own people. But the people who are affected the most and the worst were left behind. So we have to fend for ourselves, like we always have. And the resistance committees are a big part of that. And whatever happens, They can no longer be sidelined. They need to be part and parcel of any talks, any negotiations. They have the right to that seat at the table more than other parties.
0: Which begs a question on the part of Sudanese citizens dodging the bullets and bombs in Khartoum. What table? Negotiations on where the country goes from here seem to be a long way off. And democracy, which appeared within reach just a few years ago. Is nowhere in sight. This past week marked the 75th anniversary of the creation of the state of Israel. It is a divisive milestone. The state's founding involved the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, and the words that one European official chose to mark the occasion have come back to haunt her. Minakshi Ravi is here with the details.
8: Thanks, Richard. In sending birthday greetings to Israel, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, posted this video message. 75 years ago, a dream was realized with Israel's Independence Day. Describing Israel's creation as its Independence Day is controversial to start, given that it also marked the Nakba, or the catastrophe, of the ethnic cleansing of an estimated 750,000 Palestinians from their land to make way for the new state. Von der Leyen's message made no mention of the Nakba or of Palestinians, and the controversy didn't end there. Today, we celebrate 75 years of vibrant democracy in the heart of the Middle East. You have literally made the desert bloom. That last claim, which has been around for decades, implies that Palestinians were incapable of basic cultivation. Palestinian officials described it as a racist trope, and von der Leyen was eviscerated online. There were multiple Twitter threads analyzing and breaking down the message inaccuracy by inaccuracy. On that desert bloom claim, there were photos and reports about olive groves cultivated by Palestinians. You have literally made the desert bloom. And then burned down by the Israeli state. There have also been accusations of hypocrisy. In her 90-second statement, Leyen never mentioned Israel's illegal occupation of Palestinian land, even though she's been highly critical of Russia-occupying territory in Ukraine. When we contacted Leyen’s office, it sent us a statement saying, the EU is unpleasantly surprised by the inappropriate statement from the Palestinians. They also described it as, quote, unacceptable, before adding that the EU supports the idea of a Palestinian state. Apparently, though, the 75th anniversary of Israel's creation is not the time to do that.
0: Thanks, Mina. To Tunisia now, where President Kais Syed continues his crackdown on critical voices. Rashid Ghanouchi, the leader of the opposition Ennahda movement, is now in jail. When Syed dissolved Parliament back in 2021, Ennahda was the country's most popular political party. Ever since Syed's so-called self-coup, though, He's gone after his critics, effectively neutered the legal system, and brought the Tunisian news media to heel. Roughly two months ago, his messaging took a turn to the xenophobic. Tapping into a racist conspiracy theory, Syed accused African migrants of invading Tunisia, of attempting to change the country's demographic makeup. His words triggered waves of violence against Tunisia's black community, many of whom have since lost their jobs, their homes, or been forced to flee the country. The listening posts Tarek Nafa now on the racist rhetoric coming out of Tunis and how hard it is to
6: counter that. Large numbers of illegal migrants from sub Saharan Africa. Violence, crime, unacceptable practices turning Tunisia into just another African country, divorced from its Arab and Islamic roots. This loaded language forms part of an official speech to Tunisia's National Security Council, a meeting held two months ago to address the country's apparent migrant crisis. It was racist rhetoric invoking a theory of great replacement, and it was delivered by Tunisia's president, Qais Saïd.
1: It was the most shocking statement we'd heard since Qais Saïd took power in his coup d'état. The words are clear. He talks about conspiracy. He talks about colonization. He talks about crime and violence perpetrated by immigrants from sub-Saharan Africa. He stereotypes these people, saying that they're part of a conspiracy to replace Tunisians.
3: Pour remplacer les
0: Tunisiens.
1: You never
9: expect the head of state to come out and say the things that he said. To use specific terminology to describe the situation and to completely discard the consequences that might occur following that speech. It doesn't look like he took his time to think about his words or what he's saying or the implications.
6: If the president's words sounded like something a spokesperson for Tunisia's far-right nationalist party might say, it's because they were. In the run-up to Sayyid's speech, social media was awash with misinformation and conspiracy theories about the supposed toll migrants from countries like Mali, Ivory Coast and Guinea were taking on Tunisia. Leading that charge, the country's nationalist party, Parti Nationaliste Tunisien, which posted a detailed study advancing the conspiracy that black immigrants from sub-Saharan Africa were arriving in droves, out to replace the country's Arab majority population. It was just weeks between the publication of that study and the president's speech.
5: The Tunisian Nationalist Party was campaigning hard about sub-Saharan immigration. Qaisa Saïd took this idea, an idea that wasn't yet in the media, and he put it there. There's been a normalization of anti-immigration discourse, racist discourse. And this theory about the Great Replacement is now taking hold, and it's being debated on radio and TV shows. In this TV exchange, the journalist does the bare minimum to challenge the leader of the Nationalist Party. And suddenly you see that they've given the floor to someone who defends Great Replacement Theory as if it were a legitimate idea. These
9: extremist groups had a platform in which they could voice their racist ideas, xenophobic ideas, people who don't have the full picture of what migrants go through in Tunisia, people who just treat it as if it was like a normal debate, as if we're debating things that don't have
1: actual effects on other people's lives. But they do. Black migrants in Tunisia are facing a massive spike in hate crime.
6: The impact on the approximately 21,000 black African migrants in Tunisia was immediate.
5: Reports of racially charged harassment have multiplied in recent weeks.
6: Since Sayyid's speech and the racist discourse that developed, advocacy in human rights groups have documented a marked increase in cases of migrants being targeted, attacked and arrested by police. The Tunisian authorities never responded to our request for an interview. But following his speech, Zayed did deliver a joint press conference with the president of Guinea-Bissau, in which he denied the accusations of racism. De quoi il parle? Il un certain nombre
0: de ma famille qui sont maria des
5: All the countries of sub-Saharan Africa were legitimately asking for an
6: apology, but it wasn't an apology. Instead, Syed
5: accused those who oppose him, critical journalists, those he sees as challenging his ideas,
6: of misunderstanding him. Speaking out against the Sayed government takes guts. In the wake of the president's 2021 power grab in which he dissolved parliament, decimated the judiciary and jailed top opposition figures, journalists have rallied together in solidarity to protest the increasingly repressive media environment. The president came out swinging. <laughs> and the assault on the media has only intensified, enabled by a controversial new law, Decree 54. Introduced last September, Decree 54's deliberately vague wording punishes journalists who publish, quote, fake news that might harm public safety, national security, or spread terror and gives authorities license to interpret that at their discretion.
1: It's a threat hanging over journalists nowadays. They risk 10 years in prison, as well as tens of thousands of dinars in fines if they're charged with criticizing those in power or if they question the information they spread. Decree 54 has created a climate of fear in the media, especially after the arrest of Nuruddin Batar the director of Tunisia's privately owned Mosaic FM. And it stops reporters from discussing certain subjects or being too critical of the authorities, out of fear of being pursued and imprisoned, like so many opposition figures
5: nowadays. They can file complaints against journalists saying that they're spreading rumours and harmful information. And as a result, self-censorship develops. There are media outlets where the space for sub-Saharan immigrants and for black Tunisians is protected, where they can develop their narrative. But this is negligible compared to the weapon of mass broadcasting the president has at his disposal, as well as the legal arsenal that can be used to repress journalists.
6: This culture of fear and repression, the crackdown on both undocumented migrants and the media attempting to tell their story, has transformed Tunisia a country which prides itself on being the first Muslim nation to abolish slavery and which in 2011 gave birth to the Arab Spring. As the country's financial crisis worsens and the president's popularity wanes, Syed seems to be scapegoating black migrants. Before his speech, racism in Tunisia existed but was barely spoken of. Now it's been laid bare.
9: That speech weakened an already very fragile community in Tunisia. It's very damaging because it implicitly says you're not really Tunisian if you're black. You don't fit the mold of what a Tunisian is in the collective imagination. Anti-blackness is deeply rooted in history. It's a history that has never been acknowledged or addressed. So it makes sense that in 2023, we would face such a crisis, and we would hear such a narrative.
0: And finally, just six days after Fox News bought its way out of a defamation lawsuit at a price of close to $800 million, the network fired its most popular presenter, Tucker Carlson. Carlson is known for messing with the facts, regurgitating conspiracy theories he knows to be false, and for demonizing immigrants. He's also trashed other networks for putting out fake news, which, coming from anyone at Fox, is a bit rich. We'll leave you now with how the news of Carlson's firing rippled across American television screens from rival news channels to late-night comedians. There seems to be a distinct lack of empathy out there. We'll see you next time here at the Listening Post.
9: We have some news from within our Fox family. Fox News media and Tucker Carlson have mutually agreed to part ways. Tucker's last show was this past Friday.
3: He was the network's most popular primetime host and one of the most influential conservative media
8: voices on the air.
5: If there is a a, a Fox News household name, then it is probably him. He is, I I would say, the best known uh, of the Fox hosts here in the United States, without doubt. That's right. Fox News has severed bow ties with Tucker Carlson. After all these years, they are parting ways, uh, which means he was fired. I mean, that's really what parting ways means. So this is more like an
9: episode of Succession than last night's episode of Succession. The Wall Street Journal reported that Tucker Carlson's vulgar offensive messages about his colleagues helped seal his fate at Fox News. Fox couldn't have cared less when Tucker was saying vulgar offensive stuff on television about other people. But when he said it in private about Fox
5: News executives, they were suddenly outraged. Some people aren't sure what led to his exit, but Fox said that they can think of almost a billion reasons why. <laughs>